Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 49, Peter the Great, part 4, Out with the Old. Thanks for listening in. So, it's September 1698, and the Tsar of Russia, Peter I, has arrived back in Moscow after an 18-month part diplomatic and part hands-on shipbuilding tour of various European countries. And his mind is in a whir. So many things to do, and so little time to waste. In fact, Peter often used to say, wasted time like death cannot be reversed. So what was bouncing around in Peter's brain? Well, first and foremost, there were the Streltsy mutineers, around 2,000 of them, who were being held in various prisons awaiting the Tsar's justice. Secondly, he needed to check in with his wife Eudoxia because he had big plans for their future. Or, to put it another way, he had big plans for her future. And then thirdly, he had a whole raft of thoughts, questions and ideas from his time abroad, both secular, especially anything to do with shipbuilding, and religious, that he wanted to act upon. Oh, and then lastly, he still had big ideas for Russia, Black Sea-wise, Baltic Sea-wise, and European Power-wise. But all, or each of those, could apparently wait until the morning, because no sooner had he arrived than he was off again, to Preobrazhenskoye, where he spent the rest of the day and night with his German mistress, Anna Mons. Priorities, eh? Don't you just love them? Okay then, so let's start this week by putting the Streltsy out of their misery. And just a word of warning here, this part will be 
a bit gruesome. And if it's not for you, just skip forward. I'd say about five minutes. So over the next few days, a number of torture chambers were equipped and set up in various locations throughout the capital, and then the interrogations commenced. Peter wanted to know two things, which he was convinced were pretty much the same thing. Why had the Streltsy mutinied, and who had put them up to it? And in the Tsar's mind, it was his half-sister, Sophia, who had somehow managed to get word out to the Streltsy commanders to get them to revolt, as part of a scheme she had concocted to take over the country whilst Peter was in Europe. Whereas the truth was that Sophia had known nothing about anything and the Streltsy had revolted because they were under the impression that either their regiments were about to be disbanded or that they were about to be replaced with foreigners. But Peter was convinced and so that was that. Throughout September 1698, the torture sessions went ahead, 24-6, Peter kindly giving the torturers Sundays off. And the Tsar, together with his jolly entourage, were personally involved in the beating, knouting, racking, burning and dismembering of the poor unfortunates who at first told the truth as they saw it, and then, when that didn't work, started to say anything they could to stop the incessant torture and pain particularly if something was suggested to them, i.e., had Sophia put you up to it? I think I would have lasted a minute, if that. If prisoners passed out from the torture, doctors were brought in to revive them, and the whole thing would start again, and after stoically, some would say heroically resisting, in time, enough of the Streltsy had screamed, yes, it was Sophia, she'd been behind everything. And so armed with a number of these confessions, Peter's next stop was the Novodevici Monastery and a showdown with his half-sister, and finally the chance to rid himself of the two things that he had hated and that had terrorised his thoughts since childhood, Sophia and the Streltsy. So faced with her raving and ranting half-brother towering over her, Sophia kept her cool and simply denied that she had had anything to do with the mutiny. Peter then changed tack, and apparently wept at how things had led them to be where they were now. But again, this show of crocodile tears had no impact upon the Tsarevna. So without a confession, and torture of a royal princess being a step too far even for Peter, the Tsar decided that his half-sister's life should be made more secure and more, well, miserable. And so Sophia's head was shaved and she was forced to become a nun. And from now on she would live a life of almost perpetual solitary confinement and was allowed no visitors or letters. And she would live like this for the next six years before eventually dying in 1704. There would be time, however, for Peter to send one final grim message or token to his half-sister. In October, the executions started out at Preobrazhenskoye. Each day, a number of the condemned were driven in carts, they couldn't walk due to the torture, to the gallows, followed by weeping and shrieking relatives, and there, in small groups, they were hanged. And then the corpses were hung at various locations back in Moscow, 
with three of the ringleaders hung directly outside of Sofia's window at the Novo de Vici, and there they remained, dangling there for the whole winter. Message delivered. And when this method of execution was deemed to be too slow and inefficient, men were simply beheaded, sometimes by boyars and members of the Jolly Company, and there was even a rumour that the Tsar himself had wielded the axe on a number of occasions. Some of the younger Streltsy escaped the fate of their older comrades, but their punishments, whilst obviously less severe, were just as barbaric. Some were branded on the right cheek and exiled, either to the Arctic wastes or Siberia, whilst others had ears and noses removed, and the wives and children of the executed Streltsy were thrown out of their homes and forced to leave Moscow. So that was the fate of the two mutinous Azov regiments. But what about the remaining 16? Want to take a guess? That's right. All exiled along with their families to Siberia. No more Streltsy. So whilst all of this carnage had been going on, and in between visits to the torture chambers and execution grounds, Peter had been busy on a number of other, less gruesome, more reform-minded tasks. You see, in his mind, if Russia was to be accepted or viewed favourably at the European top table, various changes needed to be made, even more so now because when the news of the Streltsy's fate and Peter's probable involvement in it had become known across the continent, the view of the European elite was that Russia and its Tsar were still medieval, barbarous and backward. And so out with the old and in with the new was very much the order of the day. The first casualties were the boyars and the nobles. Off came their beards and out went their oriental kaftans and robes, to be replaced by western courtly dress, with Peter himself favouring a military uniform and sporting a rather dashing moustache. If you decided to ignore the new degree, decrees or thought that perhaps they didn't apply to you, then there was a fair chance that your beard would be hacked off and or the long sleeves of your robes would be snipped off by either the Tsar or one of his gang. And for those that escaped the former treatment, a beer's tax was introduced. The practice of confining royal princesses and other noble women within the Terem was also abolished. And then Peter decided to do something about Russian money. At the end of the 17th century, the Russian monetary system was a disorganised, half-assed mixture of foreign coinage, mostly German or Dutch, and small pieces of crudely minted silver that were called kopecks. And incidentally, the word kopeck is derived from the Russian word for spear, kopio, because on one side of the coins there, there was an image of St George striking dead a serpent with a spear. Anyway, Peter had recognised from his time abroad that if Russia was to trade cohesively and lucratively along European lines, then what was required was an official state-sponsored money supply. And so at the start of the 18th century, and in typical Peter style, he had the entire monetary system reformed, almost overnight. The silver kopecks were replaced with properly minted copper kopecks, and gold and silver ruble coins of various denominations. 
100 kopecks equaled one ruble, as it still does today. And the word ruble, incidentally, derives from the Russian verb rubit, which means to cut, as earlier coins had been smaller pieces of metal that had simply been cut or hacked out from larger pieces. And also around this time, the Tsar decreed that Russia's calendar would be brought into line with the rest of Europe. Well, almost. As mentioned a number of episodes ago, in 1700 there were two calendars in operation across the continent. The Gregorian. Now, this had been introduced in 1582 and used mainly in southern European and Catholic countries. And then there was the Julian, introduced in about 45 BCE, and which was still in use mainly in northern European and Protestant countries. However, during the 17th century, a number of the Protestant countries had got over their objections and had started to use the more accurate Gregorian version, starting with the Duchy of Prussia in 1657, and then in 1700, Protestant Germany, Sweden, sort of, Norway, Denmark and Switzerland all followed suit, leaving England as the only major European power still using the Julian calendar. And in fact, England, or the UK as it would become, didn't change over until 1752. We always have to be different, don't we? Now, Peter wanted to implement the Gregorian version, but due to protests from the church, who viewed this calendar as Catholic and therefore heretical, he went with the compromised Julian version. And whilst he was about it, he changed New Year's Day from the 1st of September to the 1st of January. And here Russia would remain, and the Orthodox Church still does, until Lenin and his gang finally adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1918 meaning that for over 200 years, Russia would be out of whack with most of Europe, and by 1918, the gap between the two calendars was 12 days. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And talking there of the church, Peter had observed during his European trip that, especially in the Dutch Republic and in England, the church tended to keep out of state matters and the monarch's private life, well, most of the time. Whereas in Russia, since his return, he'd had the pious, conservative and traditional Adrian constantly chiding, chiding him about what was right and what was wrong, specifically with the whole beard thing, and more generally with the way that the Tsar and, the, and his cronies operated. 
Let's just say that the relationship between Tsar and Patriarch was frosty. And apparently there were rumours circulating that Peter was about to get rid of Adrian by having him retired off to a far-flung monastery. But Peter needn't have worried, though, because in 1700 the old Patriarch died and Peter, never one for doing things by the book, decided that his replacement, the quiet, humble Archbishop Stephan, was in charge, but in name only. A situation that would carry on for the next 20 years, although Stefan would occasionally have his moments. Someone else who the Tsar had decided was surplus to requirements was his wife Eudoxia. And so Peter had her summoned to a meeting, and for four hours the estranged couple screamed and yelled at one another. Peter's view, this was no longer a marriage. Eudoxia should accept that and move on. And by move on, he meant disappear and live the rest of her life quietly in a convent. Eudoxia's view? She was the mother of the heir to the Russian throne and she wasn't going anywhere. She probably knew that at this point, if she agreed to Peter's demands, she would never see her son again. And unfortunately, she was right. Peter left the meeting and the next day his son, the eight-year-old Alexei, was forcibly removed from Eudoxia and put into the care of Peter's younger sister, Natalia. And then a few hours later, Eudoxia was bundled into a carriage and driven out to the Pokrovsky Monastery in Suzdale, about 120 miles from Moscow. And ten days later, her head was shaved, and she too became a nun. Eudoxia never did see Alexei again, but it's not the last time that she will appear in our story. And so by 1700 or late 1700, Peter had removed his wife, had a tame patriarch, Sophia was out of the picture, and the Strelsi had been disbanded. Happy days. But every silver lining has a cloud, or so they say, and for Peter, that cloud had been the recent deaths of two of his closest friends and allies, Franz Lefort and Patrick Gordon. Both men were given quasi-state funerals, such was their importance to the Tsar. Lefort was the bigger loss on a personal level, but on a practical level, the death of the wily practical Gordon would cause the Tsar more than a few sleepless nights in the years ahead, and in the campaigns to come. Whatever had happened though, good or bad, Peter wasn't the kind of man to dwell on things for too long. There were things to be done, and remember, wasted time, like death, cannot be reversed. At the same time that he had been trimming boyars' beards, imprisoning female relatives and torturing and executing rebels, the Tsar had spent as much time as he could down at the Voronezh shipyards, personally overseeing his new British and Dutch craftsmen as they sweated and struggled in all weathers to build the first proper Russian navy. So let's retrace our steps a bit here. Remember a couple of episodes ago that with the Azov campaigns of 1695 and 1696, Russia had managed to gain a presence on the Sea of Azov, but not the Black Sea proper, which the Ottomans still dominated or commanded. So to move things to the next stage, Peter would need two things. A navy and the help of his allies, Poland, Venice and Austria, to keep the Turks occupied elsewhere. Well, work had started on the building of a navy prior to the Grand Embassy. 
However, upon his return, Peter had discovered that the situation down at Voronezh was one unholy mess. Plus, as we know, during the final days of the Grand Embassy, Russia's attempts to encourage or prod its allies into action had fallen upon deaf ears. And now the situation was rumoured to be getting murkier, with news of possible peace talks between the Holy League and the Ottomans. Undeterred, the Tsar flung himself into action. If he could get his ships finished and get a foothold on the Black Sea prior to any kind of treaty being signed, possession would be nine-tenths of the law. And somehow, miraculously, by the spring of 1699, an 80-strong fleet of ships was ready, and under the nominal command of Admiral Fyodor Golovin, with the Tsar serving as captain of one of the ships, the Apostle Peter, the whole navy was moved down the river Don, from Voronezh to Azov. And there, and at nearby Taganrog, which was to be the base of the Black Sea fleet, Peter inspected the fortifications, which, although damaged by recent Crimean Tatar raids, he had discovered had stood up well. And then throughout the summer, the Tsar's new navy was put through its paces, and by the July, it was deemed to be ready for action. However, whilst all of this had been happening, negotiations between the Ottomans, Austrian, Pol Austrians, Poles and Venetians had actually got off the ground, with the main drivers being that the Turks were struggling, both financially and militarily, to keep their Balkan campaigns going and their recent territorial conquests secure, whilst the Austrians, in the main, wanted peace so that they could throw their lot in with the anti-French alliance that we covered in the last episode. Now the Russians did have a representative at these talks, a certain Prokofi Vozhnitsyn, who was an experienced diplomat, but he'd been sent over to Vienna for the sole purpose of putting numerous flies in the ointment and stalling any chance of an agreement between the other parties being reached. But in the long run, Vozhnitsyn, and therefore Peter, would be unsuccessful. Peace between the Holy League and the Sultan's forces was eventually declared, with Austria, Venice and Poland all gaining back territory that had been lost to the Turks, and in some cases gaining extra. Whereas the Russians got Azov, a promise from the Sultan that the Crimean Tatars would behave themselves, and very little else. All of which meant that Russia had a navy, but no one to use it against. And so you could say that the efforts of the past few years had all been a complete waste of time. Well, on the surface, yes. But in the coming years, and as we will see, the navy down in Taganrog would become a very useful bargaining chip. In fact, more than a useful bargaining chip. But for the time being, and with avenues to further expansion and influence in the south cut off, Peter's whirring mind clicked into gear, and he started to mull over a couple of things that had occurred back during the Grand Embassy. There was his treatment in Riga by the insolent Swedes, and his conversations with the new King of Poland, Augustus the Strong, about the new King of Sweden, the young Charles XII, and how the time would soon be right to push the Swedes back to Scandinavia where they belonged. And the more Peter thought about it, the more he thought that that time was perhaps now. But, and here's the rub, it was one thing to be thinking about pushing the Swedes back and gaining access to the Baltic, but actually doing it, 
What was the plan? What did the Tsar of Russia really know about Sweden's current position, and for that matter, its new king? Lots of questions there. So, in time-honoured fashion, let's make an attempt to unpick them. In 1700, Sweden's position could be considered to be strong or pretty damn good. It inhabited the eastern half of the Scandinavian peninsula, Denmark Norway had the western half, and most of modern-day Finland. Plus, it had numerous toeholds and territories in Europe proper, in present-day Germany, Latvia and Estonia, and it administered all of this even though the population of Sweden was slightly less than one and a half million. It had an army which no one mucked around with and usually experienced the benefits of wise effective rule, as it had done most recently during the 37-year reign of Charles XI. So would Charles XII be a chip off the old block? Well, at the time no one knew, it was too soon to tell, but he'd made a good start. And as the years went by, most observers would be in the yes camp. Having said that though, Charles wasn't the easiest character to either like or understand. He was certainly no Peter, and in fact was in many ways the polar opposite of the Russian Tsar. As he went through his life, the young Swedish king would develop certain characteristics. He was cold and calculating. He rarely, if ever, drank alcohol. He never married or had mistresses and was probably asexual. But he would become a superb military leader, and for a while he would epitomise the 18th century image of the warrior king. In 1699 Peter knew none of this, but he did know a thing or two about Sweden and its army, and on a couple of occasions during negotiation with his allies, he got a serious case of the jitters. Would the Russian army be able to cope? Was he underestimating Sweden's strength? Could he trust his allies? And what about the Ottomans and the Tatars? Would they take advantage when the Tsar and his armies were up north? But in the end, Peter's own ambition, coupled with the pressure from his allies, who now included Frederick IV of Denmark, tipped the balance, and the Tsar threw his hat into the ring. Okay, that's where we're going to have to leave things for this week. In the next episode, there's not going to be any preamble or background, well, maybe just a little bit, and we'll just be covering the beginnings of the Great Northern War. So until then, brave listeners, batten down the hatches, don't volunteer for anything, and if you get time, read a bit of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and I'll be back to speak to you all soon.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.